Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ronald Haver, and I'm here to do something which we feel is rather unique. I'm going to take you on a lecture tour of King Kong as you watch the film. The laser disc technology offers us this opportunity, and we feel it's rather unique, the ability to switch back and forth between the soundtrack and this lecture track. I uh, would like to be able to tell you during the course of the film some of the stories about the making of it, about the personalities involved, especially Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Shodsack and Willis O'Brien. The uniqueness of King Kong has, of course, been established many years ago by not only film critics and historians, but by the public that has taken it to their hearts and made it their own in spite of numerous attempts to cash in on it and remake it, none of which were ever successful. And this is a seminal film, King Kong. It is one of the films that I think has stimulated more generations in terms of making them aware of what the movies could offer in terms of adventure and romance and fantasy. And we feel it's a very, very important aspect of Kong and something that we hope you will be able to appreciate more fully with this Laserdisc edition. I've seen the film almost 200 times since I first saw it in 1952, and I do have a great deal of knowledge that I think would be fairly interesting to most of you, especially about, as I say, the behind-the-scenes events in the making of the film. I was very lucky. I worked with Marion C. Cooper for several years before his death in 1972, and he was a fascinating gentleman. His, uh, his career spanned not only motion pictures but civil aviation. He was a hero in both wars, World War I and World War II. And in addition to working with Cooper, I worked with a number of other people that have had substantial contributions to the film. Murray Spivak, the sound effects man, and Max Steiner, who wrote the score, and of course Faye Ray, who is a wonderful woman. And I think that all of the information that I've been able to gather over the years, I'd very much like to be able to get across to you on this particular lecture. Now, I won't talk constantly. There will be stretches of silence, so don't think there's anything wrong with your, your player. It's just that at that particular time, there isn't really too much to say. Now, one of the fascinating things about Kong, the film itself, is the way the screenplay is constructed. Cooper was a great believer in what he called his three Ds, uh, drama, distance, and danger. And he was very insistent that the screenplay of Kong incorporate all of these items to varying degrees. He wanted very much to keep the mystery of uh, what was on that island. And of course, the island was so far away that it wasn't even on a map. The idea for Kong, of course, was Cooper's. The credits say from an idea by Marion C. Cooper and Edgar C. Wallace, which has always uh, raised a lot of controversy amongst people who study the film. I know from my conversations with Cooper and checking through the RKO files that the outline of the film was done by Cooper. When it came time to do a screenplay, when he was at RKO, Selznick asked him to please use Edgar Wallace, who was a very famous British mystery writer who was under contract to the studio. And Cooper had several conversations with Wallace about the project. And as he said, Wallace didn't have the slightest idea of what I wanted to do but I had told Selznick that I would use him, so we did put him on the picture, but he worked on it for about two weeks, and then he died of pneumonia, so there really isn't much of Wallace. As a matter of fact, according to Cooper, there's not a single thing of Wallace's in the script. But Cooper was a very honorable man, and he had given Wallace his word that he would 
give him co-author credit, so even though he had died, he felt honor-bound to use his name, and it wasn't entirely uh, altruistic. There was the fact that Wallace's name in England meant a great deal. But uh, as far as we've all been able to determine, the people who do this sort of investigative uh, checking into who writes screenplays, there really isn't much of Edgar Wallace in the final completed script of Kong. The other writers who worked on it in various uh, capacities at RKO while it was being written were Dudley Nichols, who was a quite well-known writer at the time, another writer named James Creelman, who did actually the first complete draft of the script based on Cooper's outline and on his own conception of what the picture should be. And I believe it was Creelman who made use of a great deal of anti-Semitic humor, uh, which the first draft had quite a bit of. Cooper had all of that removed later on uh, when the screenplay was rewritten by Ernest Shodzak's wife, Ruth Rose. She rewrote the entire screenplay in two weeks. And uh, it's interesting, the, the disparity between what someone like Dudley Nichols would be paid. He was paid close to $3,000 for his work on it, none of which really uh, amounted to much. And uh, James Creelman made $2,000, and Ruth Rose made $150. Uh, for rewriting everything in the script and giving Cooper exactly what he wanted, which was that very simple, uh, direct fairy tale dialogue. And this is a very important contribution to Kong because, as Cooper said, he didn't think that uh, the long, windy speeches that Creelman had written really enhanced the film at all. And it was a problem getting this screenplay to be as tight and as concise as possible and still make all of the various elements that were in it dramatically believable. One of the problems that Cooper had in uh, having the screenplay written was that the production executives, uh, David Selznick in particular, kept insisting that uh, Kong be brought on right away at the beginning of the film. But Cooper felt it was very necessary to have the long, slow build-up to the first appearance of Kong. And he felt this was necessary to get across the mystery and the, the exotic nature of this beast or god or something all-powerful, something still alive, as he put it, still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. And it was uh, something that he struggled with all through the making of the film, uh, trying to maintain this balance between his three Ds and the excitement of the chase. Once the film starts, once they get to the island, it's a non-stop chase, basically, is why the film picks you up and, and moves you through that so quickly and so excitingly, because the chase never lets up. Now, as I mentioned in the program notes that you've read, Cooper had always been fascinated by primates. Uh, this stemmed from something that happened to him uh, when he was about six years old. An uncle gave him a book called Adventures and Explorations in Equatorial Africa by Paul Du Chaillou, who was one of the first people to ever explore the dark continent, as it was known then. Now, he was, uh, Cooper was six when he read this, and he, re he remarked to me that the thing that fascinated him was the description of the tribes of giant apes that lived somewhere in Africa and sometimes raided the native villages and carried off screaming native women into the jungle. And, uh, of course, you know, when you're uh, young, certain things do stick in your mind. He was never sure, as he said to me, whether or not he had seen a drawing in the book or whether the description itself uh, was just so vivid that he had a mental picture of an ape carrying off a woman into the jungle. But it was something that stayed with him all of his life and did um, profoundly influence King Kong. The other thing that influenced him from this book was he determined at that point that he wanted to be an explorer. Uh, 
Uh, in those days, around the turn of the century, the world was still very exotic, still full of undiscovered places, and he was just raring to go. He had the, the adventure in his soul, as he put it, and he began training himself. He turned himself into quite a tough little individual for a kid. He uh, learned boxing and wrestling, and uh, he became a champion boxer and wrestler, as a matter of fact. He learned map making and survival techniques, and he even swam the St. John's River, which was quite a feat for a kid his age. I think he was around 16 when he did it, as he told me. Now, in 1911, Cooper was appointed to Annapolis, where he developed his other lifelong passion, surprisingly not with ships, but with planes, with aviation. He uh, was a, a lifelong advocate of the military uses of aviation, and uh, it got him into mm, some difficulties at the Naval Academy. As a matter of fact, he was kicked out four years later, uh, not because of anything dishonorable, as he told me, but just because he was high-spirited, and he loved excitement and adventure, and he just had too many demerits. So he and the Naval Academy parted company. So after he left Annapolis, he joined the Merchant Marine. And when the Germans sank the Lusitania, he was convinced that war was imminent. So he jumped ship in London, but uh, he wanted to join up there with the, uh, with the Allies. But he didn't have a passport, and he had injured himself as he literally jumped ship. So he was shipped back to the United States in steerage, and he never did quite get into that aspect of the war. After that, he took a number of odd jobs around the country, including being a reporter on several newspapers. And then in 1916, when Woodrow Wilson called out the National Guard, Cooper joined up almost immediately, uh, thinking that now he would finally be able to go overseas and see some action. What really happened was that he was assigned to a unit uh, skirmishing with Mexican bandits down on the Texas border. And that was a little disappointing because there wasn't much action down there. But he did volunteer for flight training, and uh, he was uh, a private in the aviation section of the Signal Corps, and he did receive his wings in September 1918, and was immediately shipped overseas, where he was um, active in combat, uh, aerial combat. He shot down two planes, and then he himself was shot down in flames behind the German lines. He spent the final weeks of the war as a prisoner of the Germans, and he was soon to become a prisoner of war again, this time of the Russians. He had been uh, assigned to Poland to do some relief work, and he began uh, having contact with refugees from the civil war that was then raging in Russia. Now, Cooper didn't like the concept of communism at all, and so he quit the army, and he joined the forces that were fighting against the Bolsheviks in Russia. And he had some experience in low-level bombing, but he developed a new method of doing this uh, during his battles with the Bolsheviks, uh, which was quite successful. Unfortunately, he once again was shot down and spent most of uh, the war in a Siberian prison camp. Uh, he told me, and I don't think it was hyperbole, that he led a revolt in this prison camp. He killed two men and escaped across the frozen wastes of Siberia. It took him 26 days to cross Siberia, and he ended up in Latvia, where, ironically, he was imprisoned as a suspected communist. But an American relief mission found him, and he was released and taken back to Poland, where he was declared a national hero. He was decorated, and there's even a street named after him in uh, Warsaw, the Marion C. Cooperstrasse. He returned to New York in 1921, and he wrote about his wartime experiences for the New York Daily News and the New York Times. But by this time he was 26, and he still longed to be an explorer. He told me that 
If you don't do these things when you're young, you'll never do them. While he was holding down his newspaper jobs in New York, he began studying at the American Geographical Society. And while he was studying, he answered an ad uh, placed by the owner of a ship called the Wisdom. And this gentleman named Salisbury wanted someone who uh, could write and could also navigate. So Cooper was taken on and he joined the ship in Singapore. What Salisbury hoped to do was to cruise around the South Seas and gather material for films and uh, perhaps a book. Cooper, of course, was fascinated with this area. He'd never been down there before. Uh, and as you'll see in King Kong, the island itself is set down in the South Seas somewhere, way west of Sumatra. All of this stemmed from his travels on board the, the Wisdom with Salisbury. The other thing that came out of his travels on the Wisdom was his partnership with Ernest Shodzak. Cooper had originally met Shodzak when Shodzak was a combat photographer in Poland, and the two men had struck up a friendship. They were wildly dissimilar in nature. Cooper was short and stocky and very enthusiastic, very explosive, whereas Shodzak was very, very tall. He was about six foot five and very quiet. His friends all called him Shorty, ironically, except Cooper, who called him Monty because of his middle name, which was Beaumont, Ernest Beaumont Shodzak. Shodzak had been a photographer. He'd received his early training at the Max Senate Keystone Studios, and he had gone off to Europe um, and joined up with the Signal Corps there, the newly formed Signal Corps, and was photographing all sorts of various battles and uh, uh, retreats and everything else that could possibly be of interest to the newsreel and the, the Army Signal Corps at the time. Um, when he joined Cooper and Salisbury on board the Wisdom, it was to photograph anything that might be of use in possible travelogues and any kind of further documentary. By the time their stint on the Wisdom was over, the two men, Cooper and Shodzak, had decided to strike out on their own and make a film unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. Uh, they decided it was going to be a documentary, although the term had not yet been invented even though Robert Flaherty had done his Nanook of the North about four years earlier. Now, Cooper, during his studies at the American Geographical Society, had read of the Persian tribes called the Bakhtiari. They were very nomadic tribes, and they were forced to migrate twice a year over the virtually impassable mountains of central Persia in search of grass to keep their animals and their flocks alive. These tribes were very fierce, very primitive. Um, they were uh, largely suspicious of uh, foreigners, and their ways and their customs were completely unknown in the Western world. So Cooper and Shodzak decided that if it could be filmed, a, uh, a, a record of this truly epic migration would be a sensation. If it could be filmed, the hardships were truly astounding. So Cooper went off to New York to raise money, um, and he came back with $10,000, 20,000 feet of 35-millimeter film, and a woman named Marguerite Harrison. Cooper had met Ms. Harrison some time before. In fact, in one of his uh, newspaper pieces, he had described how she had saved his life when he was uh, a prisoner in Russia by smuggling him food. He took all these newspaper pieces that he'd written and put them in a book called Things Men Die For. And just about the time it was about to be published, he received a note from Mrs. Harrison, who'd heard about the book. And she told him that its publication uh, could endanger her life because she was engaged in espionage work for the anti-Bolsheviks. So uh, what Cooper did was he got a hold of the publisher and bought up 
all of the unused copies of Things Men Die For and had them destroyed. Mrs. Harrison was very appreciative of this, and when Cooper came to town looking for money to finance the expedition on grass, she offered to put up part of the uh, financing if she could be a third partner and go along on the expedition. Now, Shodzak was not enthusiastic about having a woman along on what promised to be a very hazardous and arduous expedition, but faced with the financial situation that uh, existed, he reluctantly gave in, and the three of them uh, took off for Persia. They traveled by horse and on foot until they reached the uh, Bakhtiari tribes, and after explaining to the Khans of the tribes what they were after, they received permission to accompany the tribes on their annual migration. This trek took almost a month, and it encompassed 50,000 people, a half million animals, and unbelievable dangers and hazards. They were fording swollen rivers and climbing huge uh, ice-covered mountains and fighting off other hostile tribes until they finally reached the valleys of grass on the other side of the mountains. Cooper and Shodzak photographed this migration with uh, Shodzak's debris camera, and they were constantly running ahead of the tribes themselves, so they were pretty much worn out. And in spite of everything, Mrs. Harrison managed to keep up with them, and uh, they did complete what they considered to be half the film anyway. They only managed to get half of the migration. They didn't get the return trip. After they returned to the United States uh, with the film, which they called Grass, uh, Cooper took it on the very lucrative lecture circuit. While Cooper did that, Shodzak went off and joined an expedition to the Galapagos Islands headed by uh, William Beebe. Uh, meanwhile, Grass was becoming quite a, uh, a famous film on the lecture circuit, and it came to the attention of Jesse L. Lasky at Paramount. Lasky bought the film for commercial release by Paramount, and it proved to be quite a sensation. It, it received uh, excellent reviews, it did tremendous business, and along with Nanook of the North, which had been made four years earlier, as I mentioned, it set a whole new standard for a kind of filmmaking that hadn't been done in this country up to that time, the documentary nature travelogue film. Grass was one of the first of this type, and it was such a success that Lasky asked Cooper and Shodzak if they'd like to make another film, and of course they just jumped at the opportunity. Cooper did have another idea. Uh, this time he called it Chang. It was set in the jungles of Siam, and it told a largely fictitious story of one man's efforts to protect his family from the dangers and the encroachments of the jungle. The dangers, however, were very real. There were marauding tigers, there was an elephant stampede, and for this elephant stampede, Cooper and Shodzak and about a dozen natives rounded up almost 40 elephants and let them run riot, completely destroying a native village for the big climax of the picture. Uh, Shodzak was almost killed by a tiger, and even Cooper, uh, Cooper had his problems. He had been enraged by something that a native chieftain had done, so he slapped the man's face in front of the entire tribe. Well, he didn't do that sort of thing. And that night, when the chief's wife served the dinner, she served Cooper a, uh, uh, a dish of chicken that was laced with tiny bamboo barbs. And he almost died, but fortunately, there was a native, uh, there was a, a missionary, uh, a local missionary who saved his life, but uh, he learned the hard way not to humiliate uh, people in charge. After nearly a year of very arduous filming, they brought their negative back and cut it down to commercial length, and the film finally opened at the Criterion Theater in April 1927. 
and it had a special musical score written for it by Hugo Riesenfeld, uh, the highlight of which was backstage there were 20 men pounding six-foot native thunder drums during the climactic elephant stampede. And it was also during this climactic elephant stampede, Cooper utilized Paramount's new magnoscope process. Now, this magnoscope process was an interesting development. It opened the screen up to twice its normal size, and it gave you a picture of enormous scope. Well, the combination of the sight and the sound really created a sensation on Broadway. The picture received fantastic reviews. It did amazing business, and it was almost uh, one of the biggest hits on Broadway during that entire time. It also received one of the first Academy Awards given for the most artistic quality of production, all of which impressed Lasky, of course, and he asked the Cooper Shodzak team whether they'd like to make another film. Um, Cooper, of course, had another idea in the back of his mind. He had always wanted to make a film out of the A.E.W. Mason novel, The Four Feathers. The Four Feathers he had read while he was in prison camp in Russia and it was a novel that had struck a responsive chord in him. It was about a young man who grows up uh, accused of being a coward. Cooper had mentioned to me once that the one thing he was most afraid of was of being afraid. So he wanted very much to do this novel, and he had a novel idea on how to do it. He and Shodzak would go to Africa, just the two of them, and they would film the action sequences in Africa, then they would come back to Hollywood and film the story sequences on the stages at Paramount. Lasky thought this was unique and he agreed to it and the two men went off to Africa to film the four action sequences that were needed for telling the story of the four feathers. It was while they were in Africa that Cooper became fascinated with a tribe of uh, baboons that were living in a dry riverbed near the location. He began observing them and he began watching their lifestyle and their patterns and their social habits. Uh, and conjured up in his mind again was that childhood image of the giant ape carrying off the screaming woman into the jungle. So he began making inquiries and he found that these giant apes did actually exist and that the largest of them were in West Africa. So he took a trip to West Africa to investigate and he saw enough of them to realize they weren't quite as giant as he had been led to believe. They were taller than most apes. But still, all of this began to germinate in his mind, and the seedling of King Kong began to take shape. They finished their work on the African sections of uh, The Four Feathers and took it back to Paramount Studios in Hollywood. And that was the first time that either of the two men had ever been in Hollywood, and they were quite amazed at the, the way movies were made in Hollywood, the, especially the amount of money that they cost and the amount of money that was wasted, uh, they thought, because they were used to doing everything on a very tight uh, do-it-yourself budget and when they got to Hollywood and they saw these legions of aides and assistant directors and they were just appalled by all this uh, they wanted to finish their work and finish it very quickly and very economically since they were getting a percentage of the money that the picture would make based on of course its expenses so Lasky assigned David Selznick a young producer at Paramount to help them finish this it was the first time that Cooper and uh, and Shodzak would meet David Selznick, who of course became very important in both their lives. And for the romantic lead in The Four Feathers, uh, they chose Faye Ray, and of course this was the first time they'd met her, and she also of course would be very important to the subsequent uh, making of King Kong. The Four Feathers was finished just as the sound era boomed into Hollywood, and Cooper 
felt that it would be, as he put it, a lead pipe cinch to redo the Four Feathers and make it the first big adventure picture with sound, but he could not convince anyone at Paramount to take him seriously on this, so it was done as a silent film with musical accompaniment. Cooper thought they had missed a big chance to make a huge money-making film. The picture did not do quite the business that he thought it would or that Paramount thought it would. Cooper always felt this was because Selznick had interfered in the editing after Cooper had left uh, the project and changed so much of it that uh, it, it didn't work. Cooper was disgusted by this and he washed his hands of movies and he took all of the money he had made from movies and put it into his newest love, which was civil aviation. And he moved to New York and said that he would not make another film until he could be sure that he would be the absolute boss and that nobody could override him or second-guess him. At night, in his apartment in, uh, in New York, he began working on an 85,000-word treatise on the baboons that he'd been watching in Africa. Um, he finished it and, unfortunately, it was never published because a cleaning woman uh, accidentally threw it out and Cooper just never had the heart to redo it. After moving to New York, Cooper had become friends with uh, Douglas Burden, who was an explorer, adventure, naturalist, much as Cooper was. And he had become fascinated with Burden's account of his trip to the volcanic island of Komodo in the Dutch East Indies, where Douglas uh, Burden had gone with his wife. And they had uh, trapped and brought back to New York alive two of the giant dragon lizards that inhabited this very remote island. The dragon lizards died soon after in captivity, and uh, Cooper was fascinated by the fact that he felt that civilization had killed them. And he was also very taken by a phrase in Burden's book, his account of his travels, where Burden had written, I would like to take my family there and be king of Komodo. It was soon after all of this that Cooper began actually writing the story of what would eventually be King Kong. He had a small apartment uh, in New York, and he began doing the outline, and his original idea was to trap one of the giant gorillas in, uh, in Africa and transport it to the island of Komodo, where it would fight a battle to the death with one of these 12-foot dragon lizards. The beast had to have touches of poetic quality about him, almost human. Uh, because by now he was uh, transmogrified into a beast in love with beauty. So while he was also working on this problem, he realized that the story, as constructed to that point, lacked what he called a chariot race. Now, a uh, chariot race is, as he put it, in Ben-Hur there was the chariot race. It's a scene that everybody remembers from a specific film. In Chang it had been the elephant stampede, and of course in Ben-Hur it was the chariot race. And he realized that Kong lacked a chariot race. And uh, this was something that uh, bothered him greatly. And uh, as he related to me, one winter day, he was coming out of his office in midtown Manhattan, and he heard the sound of an airplane motor. And he looked up uh, to see this airplane flying very close to what was then the tallest building in New York, the New York Life Insurance Building. And he said, without any conscious effort of thought, I saw in my mind's eye my giant ape on top of that building. And I thought to myself, if I can get that ape up on top of that building, logically, and have him shot down by the most modern of weapons, the armed airplane, then I've got my story of the primitive doomed by civilization, and I've got my chariot race, because if that ain't a chariot race, I don't know what is. Meanwhile, Cooper, of course, had been 
examining all of the various special effects processes that were then in use by the, uh, by the movie industry, and he thought that with careful and judicious use of them, it might be very possible to do the story of Kong exactly as he wanted. He'd even gone so far as to have conversations with Walt Disney about the possibilities of using sculpture much in the way that Disney used animation. Uh, Disney said it could be done, but it would be terribly expensive. Meanwhile, Selznick had gone off and become vice president in charge of production at RKO Studios. He called Cooper um, in early, I think it was September 1931, and asked him if he would be interested in coming out and being his production assistant, helping him evaluate projects that were in the works, because the RKO studio was a mess. It was uh, not being run well. It had a lot of projects that were not commercially feasible, and, and Selznick was just stymied by all this. Cooper, he knew, had a first-class mind, and he was a good picture maker, and they were close friends in spite of their differences. So he offered Cooper the job, and Cooper immediately uh, snapped it up, thinking, maybe there is a way here to get my gorilla picture done at RKO. So he flew out to Hollywood in, uh, what, late October 1931, and took up his uh, position as an assistant to David Selznick. And one of the first things he had to do, of course, was to evaluate the various projects that were in the works, and one of them was an intriguing oddity called Creation, on which half a reel of tests had been shot. Now, this Creation project was the brainchild of Willis O'Brien. Willis O'Brien was a very intriguing figure in motion picture history. He had invented and, uh, and uh, perfected the process called stop-motion animation, whereby inanimate figures can be given movement just by photographing a frame at a time their various stages of movement. And he had done this very successfully in the 1925 silent film, The Lost World. Creation was sort of a follow-up to The Lost World, except it was a talking picture. It told a very strange story about the crew of a submarine that is uh, blown off course by a typhoon and ends up in a South American world that is populated by prehistoric beasts. Well, Cooper looked at uh, the script and he looked at the test that had been shot and he said that uh, the whole thing wasn't worth a damn dramatically or commercially as far as he was concerned. However, what was worth a damn as far as he was concerned was Willis O'Brien and his crew of animators and sculptors who had been constructing the the uh, models of the prehistoric beasts that were going to be used in the film. After he looked at the film that had been shot, he realized that here, ready-made, was the entire technical crew and the technical effects that would allow him to make Kong exactly as he had originally envisioned it. So he convinced Selznick that this was a feasible prospect, and uh, Selznick authorized $10,000 to do a test to see whether or not they really could uh, do what Cooper thought they could do. And it turned out that uh, it was a very, not an easy thing to do, but that all of the various combinations of special effects and some things that O'Brien developed during the course of production would indeed make it possible to do this. So they began filming this test reel, and Cooper chose his cast very carefully. He'd been trying to find someone to play the little girl, what he called a woo. Now, in Cooper's terms, a woo is a a good-looking young lady of blonde hair and uh, big brown eyes who has bows in her hair and looks up at a man and says woo-woo to everything he says. And he couldn't find anybody that uh, was right for it until Faye Ray came back to town. She'd been starring in a play that her husband had written in New York, and she came back to Los Angeles, and uh, she told me, um, 
Cooper called me. He wanted to see me out at RKO. And uh, he called me out there and said that he had a part for me and I would have the tallest, darkest leading man that had ever been in, in Hollywood. And then he told me this story about Kong. And I must say, I was a little taken aback, she said, uh, to be playing scenes with a giant gorilla. But he had the sketches and he had this enthusiasm and everything was, was uh, so enthusiastic uh, that I thought, well... I'll take a chance, I'll do it. And in those days, it was the depression, she said, and it was very important for an actress just to keep working. So uh, Cooper, of course, mentioned that he'd been looking for a blonde and he couldn't find one, so he just put a blonde wig on Faye Ray and he cast her as the beauty that the Beast was in love with. Robert Armstrong was cast as Carl Denham, which was a composite of Cooper and Douglas Burden. Uh, Cooper had seen him in several films and he did like uh, his style of acting and if you watch you'll see any number of Cooperisms in Armstrong's performance the, the pipe and the kind of explosive enthusiasm and the, the Kong the eighth wonder of the world that is really Marion C. Cooper he's exactly like that he was exactly like that Bruce Cabot was signed to play the part of the young first mate that falls in love with uh, Anne and also rescues her from the uh, clutches of the ape and his character was modeled pretty much after Ernest Shodzak by Ruth Rose, who was brought in, as I said, late in the thing to rewrite the dialogue. And she's the one that created these uh, amalgams of Shodzak and Cooper. So Cooper began filming the test reel. Cooper and Shodzak both began filming the test reel, uh, showing the men in the jungle in pursuit of Kong, who has captured the girl. Um, this was done in, uh, so that the, the footage would actually be usable in the film. And then it was shipped off, after they finished it, it was shipped off to New York to be viewed by the executives and given an okay or not. Um, they were wildly enthusiastic about it, and they authorized a budget of about $500,000, but no one really knew how much it was going to cost or how long it was going to take, because nothing like this had ever been done before. Selznick was behind it all the way. He kept telling Cooper, uh, well, you and Shodzak have only made three pictures, and they've all been smashes, and even though I'm not crazy about this idea, I think it'll be a very big commercial hit. So Cooper began working with Shodzak on actually filming the sections leading up to the island. And this was in keeping with his dictum that there be a long, slow buildup uh, to keep the mystery alive, to keep the legend alive, and to keep this idea of something being on that island that was mysterious and all-powerful. Here we are at the native village and the sacrificial ceremony that Cooper devised to give Kong the larger-than-life, godlike atmosphere that he needed. The set that you see here, of course, is redressed. It's left over from the King of Kings set, the Temple of Jerusalem that DeMille had done in 1926, and it was still standing on the back lot of RKO Pathé. And Cooper was going through the back lot one night while King Vidar was filming um, some native dances for the Bird of Paradise. And at this point in the construction of the script of Kong, Cooper had not really devised this native ceremonial. There were no natives on the island. The people came to the island, and they were immediately set upon by the beasts and by Kong. But while he was wandering through the back lot, he saw the remnants of DeMille's Temple of Jerusalem, and it was nighttime, and Max Steiner's music was playing, and the native girls were dancing, and Busby Berkeley had choreographed these dances for Bird of Paradise, and Cooper was standing there watching all this, and it suddenly came to him. This would be a great, great thing to do, uh, would be to create this entire religion around which 
uh, was built around Kong, and he would be a god. He would be a god in his own world, and he would have a, a tangible legend as being something all-powerful and terrible and still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. So he got very excited about this, and he talked to James Creelman, the scriptwriter. Uh, Creelman didn't like the idea at all. He said there were just too many elements in this script, and so he resigned. But Cooper got Ruth Rose, Shodzak's wife, to write these scenes, and Cooper and Shodzak convinced Selznick to give them another $30,000 to film these scenes on the back lot. And Carol Clark, the art director of RKO, redressed the old DeMille set to make it look as if it were a, uh, a huge wall and a gate that had been built years ago by a higher civilization. And then the natives, of course, as they say in the movie, kept that wall in repair. They needed it. There was something on the other side, something they feared. However, the thing that has always amazed me is if there was something on the other side, something they feared, why did they make that gate so huge? But that is the illogic of the movies, and it does make for a wonderfully uh, dramatic scene here as the, the natives tie this young woman to the, to the sacrificial altar and beat a hasty retreat. I guess they're pretty scared themselves. Now, this is still one of my favorite scenes in the film um, as the gates close. Look at that long shot. It's beautiful where she's just hanging there between those two pillars and those gates close majestically and the music goes down and the bolt comes in and locks her there. I think that's kind of an inspired sort of visualization of a very pagan ritual. I uh, always thought that uh, Cooper had an amazing sense of what, what was dramatic. Now, these natives, there were 600 of them, and they were all recruited from the Los Angeles uh, ghetto area, and they were paid $5 a day, and they worked for two days and two nights on these sequences. Now, this sequence with the natives on the top of the wall and the, the girl on the altar, what the happens here is that the natives on the top of the wall were filmed standing on the top of a soundstage in Culver City at night. The wall itself is a miniature. It's made out of sand and cereal, and the two pieces were then combined later on in the optical printer. Uh, the, the girl and the altar was added at the same time, but that was live action. So you have three separate pieces of film here, all combined in the optical printer, and they did a beautiful job considering that this sort of thing was very rarely done in those days. Now here Noble Johnson is playing the native chief, and he is about to invoke the, uh, the appearance of Kong. I don't know if Kong can hear him talking, but they will. He will be able to hear that gong. I think that one of the amazing things about this is that you don't really see Kong, you sense him in Steiner's music. You hear that womp, womp, womp. Sounds like huge reverberating footsteps coming through the jungle. And of course the natives are very anxious about this too. The very first appearance of Kong, which you are about to, here it is. It can't be anything but a little disappointing, mainly because the, they never could quite animate those trees to make them look as if they were, they were smoothly animated and you are always so shocked by seeing Kong because you've been led to expect something and you don't know what to expect. Here's the big head, now look at that. That's O'Brien's mechanical marvel. Six men inside operating it with compressed air and everything moved. It was truly an astounding achievement. Uh, but here again, as you see, he pulls the trees down and they don't quite animate smoothly. And if you look at his fur, it's ruffling all over. And the reason it's ruffling is because it was rabbit fur and every time they would animate, they would leave the fingerprints in it, and it wouldn't quite ever lay down in the same way. So they got around that by telling people that it was his muscles rippling, but it isn't really. Look at him, scratches himself and everything. He's, he's kind of endearing in this first scene. He doesn't really terrify. 
This is a very ingenious bit of business here. They couldn't quite figure a way to have him reach in and take her off the altar. So he begins to unstrap her, and then she falls down out of camera range. The actual actress, Faye Ray, fell down, and when he picks her up, he picks up the little doll, which is, I think, an ingenious solution to a problem that obviously was beyond their technical limitations right there. The men running into the scene here was something that I've always felt was a little weak because you can see them standing behind the huts waiting for somebody to yell action and then they just start running and they're not uh, it's, it's it's an indication of Shodzak's kind of sloppiness in terms of that sort of thing now here again Bruce Cabot look at that expression on his face Cooper said I want you to look through the grate and you see this huge ape and I want you to take it big and Cabot who was not an actor, this was his first acting job, he looked at Cooper and he says, you want me to look there, see a big ape and take it big? How do I take it big? Well, what he did was, of course, make that terrible grimace that you saw. Cooper had found him as a, uh, he was a doorman at a local Hollywood gambling casino, and he had a very long, unpronounceable French-Canadian name, but Cooper liked his looks, and he gave him a screen test, changed his name to Bruce Cabot, put him under contract at $75 a week, and he played... Uh, uh, the first mate that falls in love with Ann Darrow and, of course, rescues her from Kong. He was pretty much modeled, his character and his actions and his persona, he was pretty much modeled after Shodzak himself. He was the sort of, uh, if you listen very carefully early on in the film, he has a couple of wisecracks. Shodzak was a very lanky, tall fellow, had a very, very dry wit. Now, here is the actual test reel the actual footage that was shot for the test reel that Cooper convinced Selznick to do to let him test the feasibility of the idea. It's the men in the jungle uh, in pursuit of Kong. And this was actually the first thing that they had filmed. And Cooper wanted to make sure that it would be useful in the film so that they could save as much money as possible. This jungle was an actual jungle set that stood at RKO Path A. And it was used not only in Kong, but simultaneously while they were working on the animation for Kong and they couldn't film live action. Cooper and Shodzak filmed The Most Dangerous Game, an adaptation of the Richard Connell short story. And they filmed it, as I say, simultaneously with Kong using these same sets. And in The Most Dangerous Game, you will see Robert Armstrong and Fay Ray. And if you ever see these as a double bill, uh, it's amazing to watch the two sets being used because they'll use the Fog Hollow set, which you'll see later on in the uh, Kong section here. And then Cooper told me, he said, we'd be shooting on the Fog Hollow set, and then I'd finish with that, and Shodzak would rush in and, and uh, film the scenes for the most dangerous game on the same set. And it's a very kind of economical use of sets that's leapfrogging around, and they were able to do it. Saved a lot of money for both. I think the, the most dangerous game was filmed at a cost of about $300,000, which was half the cost of Kong. Now, here is the very first special effects shot in the film. It's quite a unique shot for RKO and for any studio at the time because most studios, when they used rear projection in those days, they would use an old ground glass screen which had a hot spot in the center and a fall off of light around the edges. But RKO, a man at RKO named Sidney Saunders, had devised this new screen which was made of cellulose acetate which gave a very clear uh, image and there was no fall off in light. So this animation that Willis O'Brien had done of the Stegosaurus here, which was filmed in miniature, was rear projected. The actors, of course, were in the front of the, of the real camera. The two were interlocked. And the combination was truly astounding for people because it had never been done this way before. In The Lost World, for example, O'Brien had been forced 
to have a mat line between the actors and the monsters. But here, look, the camera even moves forward as the actors move, and the image of the monster gets bigger. Now, the background there, you will see the trees and the jungle were painted on glass. They were painted on glass panes, which were set one behind the other, which kind of gave this sense of very receding mystery to the, to the jungle. It was an effect that Cooper had wanted because he remembered in the jungles of Siam, they had this sort of gray primeval mistiness to them, and he always was very, very uh, intrigued by that, and that was one of the things he wanted to get in, uh, in King Kong, was this sense of the dawn of creation. Now here, the men, of course, are firing. It all took split-second timing. They're firing at the projected image of the Stegosaurus. The action has all been worked out beforehand, but of course they're walking on this treadmill, which is not the most convincing treadmill walk you've ever seen, but it does give you a sense of scale, at least. The beast had originally been created for creation and was used uh, in, in Kong uh, in this sequence. Here is the Fog Hollow set that I talked about earlier in relation to the most dangerous game. I have no idea how big a set it was, but the fog certainly does add the element of mystery and of danger. The 3Ds that Cooper liked, the 3Ds that he and Shodzak both believed in in terms of picture making, were distance, drama, and danger. And here you have all three. And of course they have just enough logs to build a raft. And uh, this scene originally had been planned for creation. And if you look at the video documentary, you will see that the scene includes uh, the crew of the ship, only they're on a rowboat, and the girl is with them. When they decided to do Kong, instead they rewrote it and turned it into a raft. Now this shot of the raft on the, on the lake is actually a miniature, an animated miniature. The uh, close-up that comes next, of course the men are, are real. But the brontosaurus that you will see here, at least the head emerging from the water, was another one of O'Brien's mechanical marvels. It's not animated, it was an actual constructed head that came up out of the water because you cannot animate water. So they created this three-foot brontosaurus head, which of course attacks the raft, knocks it over, and uh, makes mincemeat of some of the sailors. Now, the thing that everybody mentions, of course, is that brontosaurus are uh, vegetarians. Well, my answer to that is that they don't really eat the men in the thing. They just kind of chew them up. But, of course, I don't think they had teeth. And so it's, uh, again, one of those little uh, things where the illogic of the movies being what it is, you can get away with it. Here were some of the scenes that were deleted, by the way, in 1938. You'll see them because the, the texture of the sound and the picture change. Why they took out these shots, I'll never understand. This one particular one of the sailor right here being eaten was gone. Then uh, for some reason, they took out one other shot of a sailor being flung over uh, by the dinosaurs. But it, it's, it's quite terrifying. Now, this pursuit of the men through the jungle again uses the fog hollow set. Of course, the animated dinosaur was miniature. The, this is a miniature shot in the tree here. The dinosaur is rear projected on the screen, the sailor is live action. The screams are all done by Murray Spivak, the uh, sound effects man on this, and he, he told me once that he had recorded about uh, two hours worth of miscellaneous screams. Now here is the log section. The miniature log was constructed by Marcel Delgado, 
And again, here we have the use of three or four painted glass panes on which they would paint the receding jungle. Now, Kong obviously hears the men in pursuit of him, uh, puts the girl up in the tree, and rushes off to see what all the, what all the noise is about. Originally, when the film was being planned, the men were chased onto the log by another beast, a three-horned beast called, and as far as I can remember, a, an Arsinotherium. But they deleted it, and I think they re later refilmed it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the men do not get off of the log, because the beast is on the other side of the log waiting for them. This is an ingenious bit here, too, because the Kong is not really there lifting up that log. There's a chain hoist on the other end of the log, which is lifting it up and rolling it around. Uh, and as they fall into the, uh, to the ravine there, uh, Kong, of course, is, is on a separate piece of film. This is all put together again in, in the optical printer later on. But here, of course, is the, the scene that was deleted after the first preview because it, uh, it, Cooper said it stopped the picture cold, which was the spider pit sequence. As the men fall into the ravine, they are set upon by huge, slimy monsters and eaten alive in very graphic close-up. And for the first time, I, the screaming on the screen, according to Cooper at the preview, was matched by the screaming of the audience. And so many of them got up and left that uh, he decided that it would, it would be better if it came out. He said Obi O'Brien was heartbroken because he felt it was some of his best work, and it was, but he said it stopped the picture cold, so out it came. Now here again, we have one of the first uses of miniature projection. Kong is uh, a miniature, of course, but Cabot, the scene in the cave there, Cooper and, uh, and O'Brien devised miniature projection, and they had this man named Harry Cunningham build three small projectors, and the projectors were put into the miniature sets where Cabot is. What that is, is a translucent movie screen. Now, this translucent movie screen, believe it or not, was made up of condoms. One of the engineers was telling me that he kept going into uh, the drugstore to buy all these condoms, and the guy couldn't figure out why he kept buying them by the gross. But they kept buying them because the light from the miniature projector was so intense that it would burn away the rubber surface, and they would have to keep replacing them. But uh, I've always thought that was uh, kind of an, an ingenious little device. Now see, the Tyrannosaurus scratching his ear, that's a little bit of, of action that uh, O'Brien devised to give him a sort of a human touch. And now this, of course, is one of the centerpieces of the film, the fight between, the, between Kong and the, and the Tyrannosaurus, which had been Cooper's original idea for capturing the dragon lizard in Komodo and one of the giant apes in Africa. This is how it finally emerged on screen. It's truly a masterpiece of, of action staging. Cooper and O'Brien had both been wrestlers and boxers, so they worked on this scene quite a bit. They worked in the feints and the holds and the punches and the parries and the thrusts and the gouges. The very, very first rear projection shot that was ever done at RKO uh, is this shot of Fay Ray in the, in the tree. Now, when Kong hits the tree and it falls over, you'll notice that there is a cutaway as the tree begins to fall. Cooper originally wanted it done in one continuous fall, but the, the mechanical tree that she was on kept jamming halfway down, so they had to cut away. They worked 24 hours solid on this scene. Poor Fay Ray told me that she kept falling asleep in the chair. Here it is. Now watch, there's a cutaway 
Uh-huh, because the thing will not fall all the way complete in one shot. That's a stunt girl that it was on the actual fall. But it took them 24 hours nonstop working to get that one particular shot. That's it, Kong. Ear him down. Get him. It's wonderful the way he just manages to be so human in his uh, ability to, to do all of these various things. This is great. Most people can't stand to look at this as he tears the meat eater's jaws apart and you hear that sound and you see the blood kind of gushing out. Look at that crunch. Isn't that great the way he tests it to make sure he's really dead? <laughs> Kong's roar was a very, very problematical roar. He sometimes roars for as long as uh, six seconds and Murray Spivak took his sound recording devices down to the Los Angeles Zoo, and he told me that they took it down to the gorilla cage, hoping to get some gorilla roars, but the gorillas, all they did was sit around and eat bananas all day and belch, so it didn't work. So what he did was he went down to the San Diego Zoo, and he recorded the lion cage at feeding time. He reversed it and dropped it an octave, and uh, that became Kong's roar. Spivak was quite ingenious in his ability to get what was necessary for this. When he began looking at the footage, when he realized he was going to have to put sound effects to all of this, he mentioned that uh, he didn't know, nobody seemed to know what kind of sounds these beasts had made, but he did write to the Museum of Natural History and found out that they were reptiles, the, the, the uh, Elasmosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus, didn't have vocal cords, but they could make hissing sounds. So he made all the hissing sounds and he created all of the, the various noises that these beasts would make. He did a pretty good job. Kong pounding his chest was actually, um, Spivak put the microphone on his assistant's chest and hit his back with a, uh, uh, a drumstick, and that became Kong pounding his chest. Now watch very carefully here as Bruce Cabot approaches the Tyrannosaurus. He stays live action until he goes behind the tree. Now watch, as he emerges from behind the tree, he disappears from sight for a moment. It's a miniature animated figure. Except here, of course, he's, he's real and it's, it's a rear projected shot. It's truly astounding, the, the, the amount of uh, detail that went into these, uh, these shots, not just the the working out of all of the things, but all of the lighting had to be matched very, very carefully between the miniature material and the live-action material so that it would look like it was all being lit from the same source, which is obviously an early morning sun. But just the idea of having him disappear behind the tree for a moment so that he could interact with the actual Tyrannosaurus in the same shot is uh, quite, I think, a testament to everybody's imagination. This is a beautiful composite shot. If you look very carefully, the waterfall on the left is a separate piece of film. It was photographed in the High Sierras. The tree and the foliage in the foreground are miniature. There's a painted glass backing, and the actor on the right was another mat. Here again, the entrance to Kong's lair is a painting. Uh, there are some miniature constructions in the foreground of the rocks, and of course the Kong model. Kong actually, by the way, lives in one of the eyes of Skull Mountain. These shots in Kong's lair, they had a series of uh, problems they had to solve. How do you put the smoke and Kong and the pool of water? What they did was the two smoke things were photographed separately. 
the, the pool of water was photographed separately. The animation of Kong was photographed separately, as was the, the miniature projection. Now watch, if you look very carefully at the pool of water, you'll see bubbles as the Elasmosaurus arises out of the water. Kong places the girl in the miniature fissure there. Now that is miniature projection which has been filmed previously. The live action has been filmed and is projected a frame at a time simultaneously while they are photographing the animation of Kong. If you look very carefully at the Elasmosaurus, you'll see it has tiny little feet, which are, of course, give it, the, uh, give it more of a mobility. Here again, Bruce Cabot over in the lower right-hand corner is miniature projection onto one of the uh, uh, condom screens, as is Fay Ray in the upper left there. I love the way Kong always tests all of his adversaries to make sure they're really dead. Here again, we have the pounding on the chest, which is Murray Spivak's assistant's chest, actually. And there's the threshold of Kong's domain. Now, if you look again at the skies, you will see that, if you look at the video documentary, you'll see the example we, we showed you of the way they were taken straight from Doré's Paradise Lost. Now this is one of the scenes that was taken out in 1938 because the production code administration, which hadn't been in existence in 1933, decreed that it was a little too risque. Um, I don't think it's risque so much as it is very imaginative. Cooper had watched baboons in Africa examining unfamiliar things pretty much the same way as Kong is doing here with uh, Fay Ray. The way this was done, by the way, is the miniature of Kong performing these actions was filmed. Then the, the giant hand was photographed with uh, Fay Ray in it, and strings were attached to sections of her clothes, which were then pulled away. The two were then combined in the optical printer, and you could swear that Kong really is uh, tearing off her clothes. But it's, it's kind of a charming scene. It's, it's very funny, I think, the way he kind of tickles her and then sniffs his fingers to sort of smell this very unfamiliar scent. Now you know that something is going to happen because Steiner's score all of a sudden pops up here with that little sound of wings beating. This scene, by the way, was later lifted, uh, the idea of it anyway, and used in a picture called One Million Years B.C. You see the, the detail, the geography of the island, the ship out in the ocean, the, the, the amount of distance they had to traverse, it's all very carefully laid out and very, very consistent throughout the entire film. This was a difficult scene to animate because the wings had to be held up with wires and the wires would show. So they all had to be, I believe, painted out in each and every scene. Again, if you look very carefully, you'll see that there's a miniature projection of the two. And then as they walk behind Kong and come out on the other side, they are miniature figures, miniature dolls. Now the two stunt people here are going to go down the rope. Now Kong will turn around and his exclamation of surprise is just delightful. It's method acting at its best. Watch this. Originally there had been a sequence showing Kong climbing down the side of the mountain after them, enraged. But again, uh, after the first preview, the picture was shortened by about uh, 10 minutes. And that was one of the scenes that was deleted. We've got something he wants. Yeah, something he won't get again. Famous last words, because here comes Kong to claim his bride. Now, these scenes in the native village were all patterned, almost shot for shot, after the climactic elephant's stampede in Chang.
which Cooper and Shodzak had done earlier. Um, even to the shot of the, if you'll see later on, the tiny child being pulled out of harm's way. All of these were done on the back lot at the, uh, the Path A Studios on the same, uh, during the same shooting schedule as, as the sacrificial ceremony. They were all directed by Shodzak. Cooper didn't have too much of a hand in it, except he did tell Shodzak that he wanted to make it as violent and as frightening as possible. Now here comes Kong pushing on the, on the gates. Of course, if they hadn't made that gate so big, they wouldn't have a thing to worry about. But again, uh, the shots here of the gates being moved were actually done by two off-screen tractors tugging and pulling. And the, the large bolt that keeps it in place course had been strategically weakened by sawing it so that as they did tug and pull they finally would break open the gates and Shodzak mentioned in his uh, memoirs which were unpublished that he had a dickens of a time getting those natives to react when the gates finally did break open they were supposed to see this 50-foot ape and of course there was nothing there so he, he did have a lot of trouble getting them to to react the way he wanted but here we go, here we go. The, the tractor is tugging, and there it goes, and there is Kong. Now, when the shot first came back from the lab, it had a little white fringe around it where Kong was standing in the doorway. So they took it back to the man who, who did this sort of thing, and he hand-painted the little white fringe out. Now, here's the lady. Watch. There's the lady coming, you'll see, with the, uh, with the coconut shell brassiere. I think it's one of the great late styles in native fashion. This is, of course, live action in the foreground, and the miniature Kong in the background. And he's really put out. He just tears the place apart. And here again, it's an ingenious bit. He throws it up out of camera range, and it comes down a full-size set on top of these stunt natives. Here's the baby. And there's the lady with the coconut. Oh, just wait till the last minute, and they pull that kid right out of the way. I wish we did have the footage from Chang so we could cross-cut between the two. Here again, the natives are miniature projections into a miniature set. It's live action that had been filmed earlier. And here again is one of the scenes that were deleted in 1938 with Kong eating one of the natives. And that was considered a little too terrifying in 1938. So they, they took that out. There is also a sequence that's coming up where he tears the head off of one, throws him down, stomps them into the ground. Here we have him going off into another section of the village. And as he looks into the hut, he sees, sees the man, he pulls him out. And watch, here he, he will stomp this native into the ground. Now, this is a very interesting story. I had a uh, young lady tell me once that her grandfather played the part of the native that is crushed by Kong, by Kong's foot. This is her grandfather. And that uh, they hadn't told him what he was going to do. They just said, lay in the mud and then they put this huge foot down on top of him when it was over and he'd been crushed into the mud several times he just got up and ran off the soundstage so fast he'd always been terrified by that he always told his grandchildren about the time he was stomped by King Kong's foot originally again there had been a sequence of uh, a montage as it was called in those days of radio broadcasts from around the world talking about this huge monster that had been captured uh, but that was deleted also. Interestingly enough, in the 50s, when Cooper was involved with This is Cinerama, he was going to do the new adventures of King Kong in the Cinerama process, and it was all supposed to have taken place 
in the intervening time between the time they left the island and the time they got to New York, they stopped off in Africa. But nothing ever came of that. I did read parts of the script. It was quite ingenious. So now we have King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, in New York City. And these crowd shots, by the way, were all taken the night of the world premiere of City Lights, Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. Not these scenes, but the stock footage of the crowds. These were all filmed down at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles by Shodzak again. And one of the little details I've always liked about the direction of this film is if you watch very carefully as Robert Armstrong takes off his top hat here as he gets ready to go out. Uh, it's coming up very quickly here. He takes it off and puts it behind him. Watch, there's just a hand that appears out of nowhere to take his hat from him. Ah, yes. They knew how to do things in the 30s. Now, many people tried to convince Cooper that this is where the film should start. It should open with this shot of, of Robert Armstrong walking out on the stage and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story. And then the whole thing should have been done in flashback, but he argued, no, 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 they didn't, he didn't want it done that. Selznick, as a matter of fact, tried to convince him to, to do that and make the whole picture a flashback. But by that time, Selznick had left the studio. He had gone to MGM to work for his father-in-law, and Cooper was head of the studio. Cooper was now head of RKO production. He told Selznick, he says, you make your kind of pictures you do at MGM, and you leave me alone to do this one. He uh, mentioned to King Veter. Veter said to him after he'd seen the sneak preview of Kong, uh, if you had anything to change, would you change anything? And Cooper said, nope, it's absolutely the best I know how to do. Here now, you see, this shot of Kong on the stage is a miniature matted in. Here's the big head, which is the full-size head. And of course, the extras are not quite sure what they're supposed to be seeing or how they're supposed to be reacting. And the Shrine Auditorium is probably one of the largest, or at least it was in 1933 until the music hall was built, probably one of the largest stages in the world. It's been used in any number of films. It was used later on in the, in the 50s in the... Uh, the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born, all the beginning and the ending scenes take place at the Shrine Auditorium. It lent itself very well to this sort of thing because they needed a stage that was tall enough to put that Kong. His size changes now in New York. He's no longer 18 feet tall. His size begins to, to vary depending on the sets he's in. In this, he's about 24 feet tall, and when he's on top of the Empire State Building, he's probably about 50 feet tall. They had tried to keep him scaled an inch to a foot so that he was always 18 feet high but cooper kept wanting to make him bigger make him bigger was the was the phrase he used constantly and it caused o'brien uh, to almost go crazy because o'brien was a great believer in the consistency of all of this but here they uh, they made kong a little bit bigger so that uh, he would be much much fiercer and much more impressive now these scenes of the Flash bulbs popping, of course, and Raging Kong, who thereupon breaks his bonds, and the audience, as one, gets up and starts tearing out of the theater. Again, live action, and then combined with miniature footage that had been filmed earlier of Kong. Now, when he breaks through the wall, it's made of thin copper sheeting, so it would keep its shape while they were animating it. Now, the, the man who falls off that car is about to end up in Kong's jaws. He looks down and he picks the guy up and he chews him up. 
Throws them away. Stock footage of people running. Now see the dust there. That was not animated dust. That was added separately, uh, superimposed, just to give a touch of realism. The next woman that we are about to see is another one of the deleted sequences. This is a woman named Sandra Shaw. Can you imagine her terror? And not only that, he pulls her out upside down, which makes it even worse. And again, these shots of the crowds in the street are from the world premiere of City Lights, the Charles Chaplin film in New York in 1931. And those were the days when millions of people turned out to see movie stars upside down. He drops her, realizes it isn't her, and it's done in a single take by a, uh, a zoom lens pulling backwards uh, from a stunt woman. She fell into a concealed mattress there. Now this shot of Kong looking in the window here. They were going to use the large head, but it just didn't have quite the mobility of expression that they needed, so they used the miniature Kong. Here is the, the giant hand, and you will see the giant hand off stage was on a, a dolly, and it was pushed in by five men who were also operating the fingers so that it would close around Fay Ray. Beautifully detailed miniature set of New York. She never loses her shoes. She still has her shoes on after all of this. She goes through the entire film. She never loses her shoes. Like the fights in the old westerns where the hero never lost his hat. Now this sequence, there's a very good little story behind this. When Cooper first lived in New York City in 1928-29, he lived close to the 3rd Avenue L, and it kept him awake most of the night, and he hated it and he needed a, one more sequence in Kong, uh, and he thought, well, I, great idea, we'll just tear down the damn Third Avenue L, because he always hated it. So pretty soon, O'Brien and his crew were at work constructing a miniature of the Third Avenue L, and Kong, of course, plays havoc with it. There's a lot of Cooper in Kong, I'll tell you. Um, there's also a lot of Cooper in the film. If we could freeze the frame, if you get a chance, freeze the frame as the train goes by, you'll see one of the ads on the side of the miniature train says, Sea Grass, now playing, a Marion C. Cooper production. These sequences are all quite, quite terrifying, too. Uh, they're very different than the rest of the tone of the film, at least the interiors of the crowds are the very German expressions. All of a sudden, that huge eye comes peering through the window at you, you're terrified. But the shots of the people now the chaos in the crowd here and the woman falling are all very heavily influenced by the German Expressionist films at the time. And you'll see them falling out of the bottom of the train now. See the, the miniature figures over in the left bottom there? And then of course the building on the right is matted in. It has live action and real people in it. Now, I've always been amazed at the police chief's ability to just say you're right, planes, call the field, and they're the planes, and they all take off. Now, these are biplanes, uh, four biplanes that uh, Shodzak went back to New York to photograph. They were at Floyd Bennett Field. Now, this shot of Kong climbing the Empire State Building has always fascinated me, too, because he's climbing it hand over hand. Where is Fay Ray? I mean, where is he holding her? The building itself is a painting. And Kong is a miniature, of course, that was matted onto the side of the painting. Now, the shots that are coming up here of the um, planes, they were photographed in New York by Shodzak. They were from Floyd Bennett Field. And later on, as you will see, the two aviators that really do most of the damage to Kong 
are played by Cooper and Shodzak when it came time to actually shoot down the ape. They looked at each other and said, let's kill the son of a bitch ourselves. And Cooper, of course, was a fantastic flyer. He'd been a flyer since he was a kid, and he uh, was his second passion in life was planes after exploring. This shot of Kong on the top of the building, the background is a painting. Now here are Cooper and Shodzak. The planes are real, the building is a painting, and Kong is animated on top of it. Again, this background of New York City is a panoramic painting by Mario Laranaga. They tried to photograph, but it just didn't look real, so they painted it. Now, he sets her down, and you'll notice that he's holding her in one position. When he sets her down, he kind of lays her down in a strange position. That is because when they filmed the live action of her to be projected into the miniature spot there, they filmed her in the wrong position, and later on I'll explain how they did what they had to do. This shot that's coming up of the plane diving toward Kong was achieved by just inching the camera down a ramp a bit at a time to give the effect of a plane diving toward him. There's an awful lot of Cooper in Kong. He acted out the, the scenes of Kong on top of the Empire State Building for Willis O'Brien, including the death scene. And he said, I uh, overdid it. I was a little too hammy. You should have seen it was the funniest thing you ever saw. Because they followed exactly what I told them to do. And it was this big ape writhing and rolling and, and roaring. And so it was just too funny. So we redid the entire thing. I wish they had filmed that. I would love to have seen Cooper acting a part of King Kong. Grab that plane and drop it down. Now here again, there's a miniature of the Empire State Building and a miniature plane, and it was photographed at a very high speed to give it that impression. Now this is Cooper in the front flying, and that's Shodzak in the back And that shot. Now watch very carefully when Kong picks up Fay Ray here. You see the position she's in? He picks her up backwards and then very, very carefully he turns her around in his hand to obviate the fact that she was in the wrong position. And he lays her down in exactly the same position, which is, again, awkward for an ape to do. Gives her a final drooping farewell there. And here's the scene that Cooper was talking about. They did tone it down quite a bit. This final fall is given a very realistic touch by having him bounce off the parapet before he falls down the street. I've always thought he was a very chic ape. He fell on the Fifth Avenue side. Again, the background there is a, is a painting. And meanwhile, down on the street, Carl Denham comes to look at what's left of the giant ape he brought back. Now, the crowds are real, of course, and Kong in the foreground is a miniature that's double printed over the actual footage of the crowds. Oh no, it wasn't the airplanes that got him. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. And that is the end of our story, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed this tour through the world of Kong, and perhaps you've learned something you didn't know before. It's been a great pleasure to be able to do this and now you'll be able to watch the film as many times as you want and dazzle your friends with the secrets of various things about it. Thank you. <laughs>